Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Collecting cars, the global online marketplace devoted to cars, bikes, and automobilia. A safe, smart, and simple auction experience for everyone. List for free. Sell for free, hassle-free. Follow us on Instagram at Collecting Cars and also CollectingCars.com. Hello and welcome to another Collecting Cars podcast. Today we have Simon Kidston. And I'm not going to try and describe what he does because I might fall into the trap of saying that he's a motor trader and of course actually he's not simon is a purveyor of the finest cars in the world and has a, an address book that we would all love to snaffle because it must be the best in the world but he's owned and driven most things and he's bought and sold most things and his storybook is incredible and it culminates in being a part of the sale of the most valuable car ever sold uh, in the world Ever. So we'll hear that story, but we want to touch on, on his experience. So Simon, welcome to the Collecting Cars office. Um, I don't want to call you a motor trader. What do you call yourself? A very used car dealer. <laughs> <laughs> so where did it start for you? I want, I want to start, first of all, with pr- your professional life with cars. And then, and then halfway through, I'll stop you and I'll say, let's refer back to you personally. And when did your personal love for cars start? But the professional thing I, I want to get to first. So what was your first job in cars? I was very fortunate with zero qualifications, I I dropped out of university, to get a job just before my 21st birthday as, I suppose you'd say, an apprentice at the now defunct Coys of Kensington. In that muse that some of your listeners may remember, in uh, Queensgate Muse, um, in the late 80s. And I was taken on, I was asked, do you want to be in the auction department or do you want to be in the sales department? I had absolutely no idea what the difference was between the two, so I said, uh, auctions. And uh, I remember I, I grew up in Italy, and um, basically after I'd done the interview, which was 
which was concluded in the pub opposite Corey's, and where they said to me, okay, well, we're not sure, but we'll give you a three-month trial period. So flew back to Italy on my standby cheap ticket, uh, packed all my worldly belongings into my little Alfa Romeo Spider, and drove, already wearing a jacket and tie, I'm not entirely sure why, all the way from Siena in Italy to England, where I um, asked a friend, if I, a school friend, if I could sleep on his on his sofa bed. So turned up for the first day at work, and uh, I was given various tasks from making the tea uh, after a couple of weeks to writing or helping to write auction catalog descriptions. And then at the first auction that took place about two months later, I just stood around without a clue what I was expected to do. I think I probably hid behind the rostrum most of the time. But basically, I was uh, an assistant in the auction department. I used to call it the ashtray. The ashtray. Basically, you're the the company ashtray, aren't you? You're just this thing that's just a receptacle for anything someone doesn't want to do or anything that anybody wants to dump on you. And that included included moving my boss's car when the when the wardens came around. I would get a clip around the ear if if he ever got a ticket. Making the tea, going out and getting the sandwiches. You name it, I did it. Um, I do remember the first time I the first auction catalogue description I submitted was for a Ferrari 500 Superfast. And um, I gave, handed this into my boss, having spent ages compiling it, looking at various Ferrari books and so on, but without actually having seen the car. And uh, my boss showed it to the owner, who, who said, has this person ever seen one of these cars? This is absolute rubbish. Um, luckily, he left the car in the auction, but the, um, the description had to be redone. And then I was sent out to photograph the first car. Uh, and I remember it was a Bentley, uh, a, w- a blower Bentley up in Watford. And I trotted off to photograph it. Uh, my pictures were so bad that the car had to be withdrawn from the auction <laughs> and, uh, and, and put in a subsequent auction whilst they had it professionally photographed. Um, but I absolutely, this sounds very corny, but I absolutely loved that job. So, but your, your passion for cars was already established. You, you own an Alpha Spider. So are you just living in the Dolce Vita, or are you are you are you now already invested in motor cars? Coins of Kensington, I was living the Dodgy Vita rather yeah. than rather than yeah. the Dolce Vita, but it certainly taught you a lot, including including what not to do. Now, I grew up in a family which had always been which had always liked cars, maybe not to, quite to my extent, but my dad was very very old, and uh, he was in the navy and had a bit of spare time in the navy, and. Uh, during that spare time, he raced cars. But because he was so old, the cars that are now classic were, were new or secondhand when, when he raced them and didn't cost anything like as much money back then. This is in the 1930s. Did he have the foresight to put some in the shed or not? Sadly not. Um, What's the one that got away? What's the one you have a photograph of your fa- your late father driving and you think, if we had that, that would be quite useful uh, now? Yeah, that's a bugger, isn't it? You've uh, got, what's, you've what's got most of them back, Simon. I've got one or two of them back, but there are quite a few that elude me, either as I haven't found them or I can't afford them. Um, the only car that he kept was the Porsche Carrera RS 2.7, which I, I still have, which he bought new in 1973. Everything else was, was sold because he so was you have a, you have a one owner. I've got a one owner 2.7 RS that came down the driveway in 1973. The Porsche salesman, I, I, I don't remember this person, I was too small, but uh, the Porsche salesman came around a few months before and said, we're going to be making a, a new car. We're only going to make 200 of them. And because you're a valued client, which he wasn't at all, which showed you how desperate they were to sell these cars. Would you like one? You could have one. And he said, well, okay, yes, I'll, I'll have one, and uh, I'd, I'd like it in this 
pale yellow, which I've seen on another one on the or another 911 on the auto route in in France. How he knew the color, I'm not entirely sure. But uh, anyway, I guess three six months later, this lurid orangey yellow car came down the driveway, which wasn't at all what my dad had expected. But he was, I guess, too either too polite or too impatient to say take it away. And uh, that's that's the car that I remember from my from my youth. It was always there, tucked up in the garage, only ever used for special occasions. There was a three liter SI BMW for long family trips, which which we did a lot of miles in, backwards and forwards to Italy. But the Porsche was always the treat, and I can always remember being squeezed into the back of it. And I remember one instance where he accelerated, and these teenagers who were walking along the street turned back to look at the, what car was coming by, and I thought. That was the coolest car in the world <laughs> at that time. But, uh, yeah, there, were always, there, there was only, only ever one special car, and pretty much that was it. There was a 635 BMW in the early 80s that he collected new from, um, from Munich. But there were stories, occasional stories, about, well, when I was young, I had this Bugatti or this Alfa Romeo. I remember when we went to buy the... the I found this Alfa Spider in, uh, in the back, of a, in the back of, a, of a magazine in Italy, in with a volvo dealer in florence and it was very very cheap i'd been told that i had a small amount of money to buy my first car because my dad thought i would buy a second-hand renault 5 or something as as you should do when you're 18 or 19 but i of course had aspirations of grandeur and i found out by reading exchange and mart that you could actually buy an old aston martin for that price you could buy a dbs v8 aston martin i'm talking in the late 80s for three thousand pounds and before the internet you'd then call up the insurance company for a quote and you put on your deepest and most grown up <laughs> grown up voice and they'd say so what car would you like an insurance quote for uh, it's an aston martin uh okay what year 1972 what model dbs v8 and how long have you held a license for <coughs> pause um it's a provisional license and how old are you sir um i'm 18 uh can i pop you on hold <laughs> You'd be on hold for 15 minutes. Well, sir, yeah, we can insure that car for you. That's the good news. The premium will be £15,000 with a £15,000 excess. That was the end of the Aston Martin theme. So, <laughs> yeah. cut a long story short, Alfa Romeo Duetto. I remember finding this car for about three grand. It must have been taken as a part exchange against a, a Volvo by somebody sensible. And, um, and I remember my dad came with me when I went to go and actually buy it. And he started telling the salesman, about the 8C 2.3 Le Mans that he had before the war. And I, I tell you, I've, I was the most embarrassed I've ever been. I thought, I thought, what does the salesman care about some rubbish old car that you had once upon a time? And of course, now I think, oh, wow, if only he'd kept that. But at the time, it was cringeworthy embarrassing. So, so were you passionate enough about cars to know that, that was, you were always, always going to have a career, a career around motor vehicles? No way at all. Or do you think actually there was a serendipity to your life that meant that if you had chosen to go and work in a fine art auction house at that same time or um, furniture or something else, you could, have, you could have had a totally different career trajectory, do you think? I could just as easily be flipping burgers at McDonald's um, as, as handling the sale of, of very expensive cars. I had no idea what I was going to do as, uh, as a teenager. Absolutely none. I thought, wouldn't it be cool to be a musician? Although I didn't actually know how to play an instrument, but this was the 80s. And um, I just, I actually just fell into it. After leaving school, had a bit of spare time whilst, whilst before starting uni. And I guess in boredom, um, started asking my dad if I could look at some of the old papers of some of the cars that he'd owned. And as he was a naval officer, he was very meticulous about everything and everything was filed precisely. 
the original invoice, the correspondence, the, there's everything. A catalog from when he bought the car and so on and so forth. And that's going back to the early 1930s. So there's correspondence with Bugatti. There was the original logbook for the HC Alpha. Uh, there were speeding fines from the supercharged S-type Mercedes that he'd taken to New Zealand as a, as a young officer. Everything was there. All the correspondence from the new Gullwing with Mercedes, even the petrol receipt from when he collected the car from the factory and drove it to the Nürburgring. I mean, that level yeah. of detail. And so I guess, as with anything, the more you learn about it, the more you get into it. And I thought, God, this is really actually quite interesting. I mean, it's a bit sad for somebody, at the t a teenager at that time, to be as, as into that as I was. But it made me think, God, wouldn't it be really, really cool to to work in the old car world. But the reality is that I did not learn about old cars by being told about them by my dad. I was much more interested in the latest Countach or the latest Aston V8 than I was in anything old. Fact was that with my imaginary budget, all I could afford was something old. So I learned about old cars through reading car magazines, like classic cars and classic and sports car, and frankly, exchange and mart. It wasn't anything fancy or transmitted down through the ages and it, when i was when i was a teenager i knew that i had some distant uncle i'd never met who once raced but but that was it there was no great uh, uh ambition to work in the car world it was almost i would say more than anything else just an accident that a cousin of mine who was a banker in london and knew i liked cars and knew i was looking for a job and knew i had applied by the way to tons of different companies for a job without getting any kind of response or getting one interview and a brush off. My cousin um, happened to walk by Coy's, just knocked on the door. Do you have a job? My cousin loves cars. Well, actually, yes. Get him to send us his CV. So this cousin, who was very, very kind and uh, and thoughtful, called me up and said, Simon, there's a job at to this place called Coy's. Oh, really? I sent them my CV a year ago. They never got back to me. Well, send it again. So I had to make up my CV, which was very, very short, um, and uh, go and find somewhere that had something a newfangled device called a fax machine, yeah, fax machine. and <laughs> drove to siena post office 10 kilometers away proudly faxed I, i've sent my first fax faxed my cv to coys and was told hop on a plane and come over for an interview <laughs> and, and yeah and that was Brilliant. it so fast forward from from coys to when you set up on your own i want to get to the know how quite quickly because it's just a magnificent story and i know it takes a bit of time uh, but it is it's so good but but so w when you strike out on your own um there must have been a moment a transformative moment for your business because you know you, everyone knows the idea of dipping out from underneath the co cover of a big organization is scary but what what changed things and put really put you on the map because you know w when did you become the man to go to for the special cars he hasn't uh, yet <laughs> well, that, that, but that, hang on, that's that's collecting cars, surely. <laughs> the second. Uh, well, fast forward. I did eight years at Coys after my three-month trial period, and I guess what helped me immensely uh, was the fact that I spoke languages. Having grown up in Italy, been to school in in Switzerland as a kid, and uh, grew up speaking therefore Italian and French. And at the time, the classic car world was really just an, an extension of the second-hand car world. There were. The, the, the level, I would say, of connoisseurship and professionalism was not particularly high. So if you spoke languages, if you went that little bit further than other people in doing your job, try to be a bit more precise, put in the extra hours, and, and frankly, if you really loved it, which I did, I couldn't believe that I'd been lucky enough to, to work in, in that field and actually get paid £8,500 a year for doing it. 
I thought I was the luckiest kid in the world. And so did that for eight years. Uh, Christie's and Sotheby's both lost their department heads at the time. This is in the early 90s. And I applied for the jobs, and they both made me offers. Um, wisely or not, probably not, I told my bosses at Coys this, who then offered me a share in the company. So I said no to Christie's and Sotheby's, whereupon Coys didn't make good upon their promise. So they strung me along for another year. And at that point, again, by complete chance, I heard that a director of Brooks, which became Bonhams later on, wanted to sell a car that happened to have belonged to my dad. My dad was the first owner. Um, so I contacted him and he said, actually, no, I don't want to sell that car. I want to keep that. So Lancia Aurelia B20 GT. Uh, I want to sell another car. I sold it for him. When the head of Brooks heard that, that this director had sold a car of his own through uh, an employee of Coys, which was considered the devil incarnate by Brooks, absolute bitter rivalry between the two, he said, whoever that guy is, you've got to get him to come and work for us. So basically, I, I joined Brooks uh, on the basis that it would allow me to leave my little flat in Fulham. Sorry, guys, no offense. Um, just around the corner from here, in fact. Um, and, uh, and go and live on the continent again. Got to do that, worked my backside off because I really wanted to be independent from the parent company. And I did that for 10 years. And that gave me the chance to be independent, although the company was owned by, by, by Brooks, which became Bonhams. Um, and I suppose to get a little bit more profile over that period of time. Developed the auction in Gestad. Uh, for just Ferraris, auction in Monaco, which already existed, but built it up a little bit. Nürburgring, Paris, um, Geneva, Mercedes-Benz Museum, which gave me my first contact with them. So I developed a, a busy calendar of auctions around Europe and helped, up with, helped out with the setting up of, of Bonhams or Brooks, as it was, USA in, in 98. But uh, yeah, we really, really worked hard. I, I, got a, a very, I had a very small team. Uh, Max Gerardo um, came on board in the, uh, I think, second or third year of, uh, of, of me starting that business. And other colleagues, people like Mathieu Lamour, who now runs the car department at uh, Art Curiel, uh, was a colleague of mine. I, I took these guys on, and we made a great team. And after 10 years, I'd never made a secret to, to Bonhams that one day I wanted to do my own thing. So when I was 38, I said to Robert Brooks, the chairman, look, the time has come. I'd like to go and do my own thing now. We did a very friendly deal, and I was able to take my team with me. I was able to take over the offices in Geneva. And um, So you're still in those original offices? Or same building. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, same building. Moved up a few, a few floors, but uh, same building. And um, yeah, I still, st I've still got one, one of the team members from the original Bonhams days um, who's on board now. And obviously, we've grown a little bit since then. But 10 years at Brooks, which became Bonhams, and then beginning of 2006, decided it was time um, to start my own business. Actually, when I did that, I didn't want to be involved in the sale of cars. I felt that that was a market. The reason for leaving the auction business wasn't any great dissatisfaction with Bonhams. We, we had a, a good relationship, and we did some really fun and cool things together. It was actually that I felt that the auction business was getting stale and it was getting hard to find really good things to sell. Yeah. Plus, I found myself in charge of all of Bonhams Europe, not just cars. And I remember going, I remember hosting a reception of Greek art in Athens. And I was standing on the stairs of this museum greeting everybody, thinking, 
what am I doing here? I have no idea about <laughs> Greek art or any other any other kind of art. Yeah. I felt like an imposter, and I thought, do you know what? I love cars. I like the auction business and the theat the, the theatricality of it, and so forth. But the buzz it's like a it's like the opening night of a play when you when you put on a really good auction which you've worked on for months. But I felt I felt that it wasn't for me to be managing that many people and to be attending board meetings, which were frankly not my thing. It's it's just it's you either love the business or you love the management it's rare that you like both and i i liked i like the product that i was handling but i felt that it was getting stale because you had to constantly find material to to fill to, to feed the auction machine you know you've got these venues booked months in advance and you can't then cancel the auction if you don't find the kit and i felt the quality was suffering and i felt we were taking things that weren't weren't of high enough standard at the price at prices that were not right for the market and i thought no let's get away from this let's try and do something different and and effectively start a consultancy business that would offer advice that would help people to finance cars of which as you probably know there's not a not an awful lot in the in the classic car yeah. sphere and also to insure the cars uh, so that is what i left bonhams to do and that idea lasted that grand plan lasted about one week until somebody called me one day to say, Simon, you know that Ferrari 14 Louvre Tour de France that you asked me if I would sell two years ago? I am ready. And I said to him, well, I'm not really in that business anymore, but let me bear it in mind. The next day, an old client calls me and says, Simon, I'm, I'm about to buy a Ferrari 14 Louvre Tour de France, <laughs> and I'd like your advice. And I said to him, which car is it? And it was a different car. And I said to him, look, I can't really advise you because I possibly have a conflict of interest because I've been asked uh, about another one. He said, don't worry, I'd be happy to buy two. <laughs> That's how easy car dealing is, isn't it? I know, <laughs> you should have told me I would have joined your ranks way earlier. <laughs> and, and it really was like that? It really was like that, yeah. So, so you've, you've, you've already mastered the art of sitting in the middle of the deal. Which, which is what, well, that's what an auctioneer does as well. Whether you do yeah. it online, do, 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 or you, you, do you master it, or that, there's an element of luck to that, isn't there? That gives you the confidence. I think if anybody told you that they hadn't had luck in life, yeah. I know that they say that. What is it? The famous golfing saying that. Yeah. The, the more I practice, I, the more I practice, the luckier I get. But if anybody tells you there isn't luck involved in things working out. Um, yeah, I wish we, I, we were looking I, at some I, photos. I, wish I agree with that. I, I have to say, luck always plays a big part. But at the same time, you have to take risks as well. And uh, I, I took a risk in, in leaving a job that had a, an okay salary attached to it to strike out on my own without any great savings. I yeah. didn't have any family money. Um, but, and, and it could have gone horribly wrong. But um, on the basis that you don't, if you don't try, you don't find out. We were looking at some photos earlier on of a, a car that Chris owned a long time ago, which was a 993 RS uh, in midnight blue with a small spoiler. And when I'd left my family business for the second, third, fifth, sixth time, I can't remember <laughs> why. And I, I, whenever I leave the family business, I decide I don't want to be a car dealer anymore. So I thought, right, I'm going to start an events company for car people because I, I like doing um, driving tours because I don't want to be a car dealer anymore. And someone called me and offered me a 993 RS small spoiler in midnight blue. And I thought, right, I'm going to buy it. So I, I bought it for myself. And then the next day, someone called me to say, I fancy a 993 <laughs> RS, and I sold it, and I thought, okay, I'm a car dealer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ne ne never listen to a car dealer who says, I'm buying it for myself. <laughs> yeah, everything's for sale. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let's fast forward to um, 
the most expensive car in the world. It's it's a remarkable story. Uh, I th- I th- think it's unprecedented it, the way the transaction came about, and also the legacy of what that transaction will mean for the maker of the car and the now owner of the car is quite special as well. So can you can you tell us how it came to be? Because you've obviously you've told us that you you have a sort of family relationship with. Um, Mercedes, it goes back a long way. You know, your father had a Gullwing. You, you understand the significance of those cars, that engineer, that point in time, and then you get involved with this sale. So tell us about it, because I, I, it's a great story. Well, uh, you'll forgive me if I don't give you all the details. <laughs> <laughs> but what I can tell you is that I have personally always felt that the 300 SLR I'm not going to say it was necessarily the most historic car in the world, because one could argue that that was a VW Beetle or a Ford Model T, but the most desirable car in the world. And Do you think you could answer, I won't interrupt again, but do you think you could also add to that potentially the most valuable car in the world? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. would. Um, if I backtrack a little bit, and I, and I keep on doing that, so I apologize, but... When we lived in Italy, uh, our house was on the Millimilia route in Tuscany near near Siena. And my dad had been to see the original Millimilia in his going, which he drove down from, from England. And um, in the late 80s, when I was in between basically dropping out of uni and finding a job, he said, let's go and see the, the Millimilia. It's passing by. Now, I'm old, but I'm not that old that it was the original Millimilia. It was the Millimilia retrospective. So we, we drove off to this, um, this, this road, this windy road. I think it was Radicofani, just uh, near Siena. Parked by the side of the road and waited for the cars to come by. And we saw a variety of Bugattis and things, which all were all, all very nice. And then I remember there were, I saw these two little red cars, red barquettas, weaving their way through the trees. And then all of a sudden, a silver flash behind them that gobbled up one, gobbled up the other, and then whooshed past us with this really unusual engine sound that none of the none of the other cars even the ferraris had had and i said to my dad what the hell was that and he said oh, that was a 300 slr mercedes driven by sterling moss and dennis jenkinson and it was 722 the car that they famously won the race in record time with back in 55 that just stuck in my mind more than anything else i suppose Little little Jenkinson huddled down in the passenger seat with his beard and his glasses, the most improbable rally co-driver, a gnome-like man, moss focused and steely-eyed as ever. But more than anything else, the sound of that car—it was like a creature from the deep—and it just it just stuck with me. So, of course, you know, not cars that you see very often. But I remember when I was at uni, going to the Mercedes-Benz Museum on a day off and and being impressed by the 500k special roadster, the Uhlenhaut Coupe, and, and so forth. Anyway, as the years went by, I, whenever an article came out about those cars, I would read it. Whenever a book came out, if I could afford it, I would buy it. And when I got, of course, I never thought I never thought that one of these cars would ever be for sale. Nobody did. But I remember I was speaking at a, a, a symposium at the Collier Museum, which is this very refined and almost academic institution, a fantastic collection in Naples in Florida in about 2010, or t- yeah, 2010 I think it was, and s- the director of the Mercedes-Benz Museum was speaking there as well. I was talking about the market for modern supercars I should have asked you, Edward um, and the Mercedes Museum was talking I think about conservation, and at the end of our discussions I said to this guy who I didn't really know, but I said to him my favourite car is the 300 SLR if you ever so much as take it out of the museum, 
could you let me know because I just love to hear it run anything I'd, I'd really be I'd, I'd really be grateful for that and round about that same time I wrote an article I, I occasionally contribute columns to different magazines and I wrote an article I think for Sports Car Market in America uh, in which I mentioned that the 300 SLR was in my opinion the most valuable car in the world and I got an email from the director of the museum a couple of weeks later and instead of saying would you like to hear this car run he said Simon how would you like to drive the 300 SLR Uhlenhaut Coupe on such and such a date um, we have planned two routes for you around Lake Garda Gardazé, um, each of approximately 60 kilometers would you be available that day? I tell you what, I've never pressed yes and hit reply so quickly in my entire life. And so on the appointed day, I turn up with a camera crew, of course. You're not going to waste the opportunity, are you? And um, the, this very modest single-car truck turns up with, without Mercedes-Benz written on the side, just with Stuttgart plates. The back goes down, and out comes the what I would call the holy grail of cars. It's one of the two Uhlenhaut coupes, um, the one with red interior. And uh, it has its own mechanic who's looked after it for years, and there's a lot of fiddling and twiddling, and, and a big fuel churn fills the car up. And, uh, and then finally, um, the moment comes, and they, they fire it up. Oh my God, does this thing sound like a chariot of the gods. Before you tell us what it's like to drive, can you just quickly tell our listeners who don't, who know what the car is but aren't fully informed why were there two and why did they exist so mercedes for the 19 mercedes came back into racing after the war the fact that before the war they had won everything state funded by a not not very popular regime but they gave them a lot of money because they realized the propaganda value of motor racing uh, sport in general and the the nazi party funded uh, Mercedes and Auto Union against cars from the rest of the world. And they, frankly, wiped the field. But they had a comparatively unlimited budget. Um, the war happened. Mercedes-Benz factory and Auto Union's factory were both absolutely decimated. After the war, what was remarkable was how quickly they managed to rebuild. And Mercedes came back into motorsport in the early 50s with the first gullwing, which was basically just a derivative with a sports car body and a, and, a, and a lightweight tubular chassis, SL for sport light, that was the first SL, um, and these distinctive gullwing doors, which weren't a styling gimmick as they might be now. They were because the chassis came halfway up the height of the car um, because it was this thin tubular framework and that was the only way to make it stiff enough. Anyway, they won Le Mans in 1952 and that gave them the courage to, to, to make a, 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 an all-out assault uh, in 54 and in 55 on Formula One and sports car racing, which was uh, very important at the time. You had Jaguar, you had, of course, Ferrari, Maserati, Oscar, um, Porsche in the, in the lower classes. That was a very fiercely, a fiercely competed uh, type of racing. So Mercedes, for the 55 season, they basically took their 1954 Formula One car, the formula at the time was two and a half litres, boarded out to three litres, which you were allowed to do for, for sports cars, and put a sports car body on it. So the 300 SLR sports liked Renan, and don't think that the 300 SLR has anything to do with a, a 300 SL gullwing, because apart from the fact the doors open upwards on the coupe version, that's where it ends. The SLR was an, an eight-cylinder car. It had this incredibly 
um, involved mechanical specification, desmodromic valve gear, this very complex gearbox. Um, the the whole car, just the bonnet of the car, is much longer, being an eight-cylinder rather than the rather than the the humble gullwing, the mechanics of which were basically derived from the contemporary saloon, the Adenauer saloon. So the SLR was an all-out racing car. Uh, they contended all of the big events that year. The big blot in the copy copybook, unfortunately, was Le Mans, yeah. where Lance Macklin's Austin Healy pulled out in front of Pierre Levet, the French guest driver who'd been asked to drive one of the Mercedes cars, um, uh, because he'd nearly won previously. Um, Lance Macklin pulled out in front of the pits at the last minute when Mike Hawthorne swerved in front of him in a D-type, and he went into the path of Pierre Levet, hit the back of the Austin Healey. Because it was sloping, the car went up in the air, and tragically, it ended up in the crowd, and over 80 people died. I think it's still the worst motor racing ac accident ever. Uh, Mercedes-Benz withdrew their cars a few hours later when the word came from the management in Stuttgart, and they were leading at the time. Apart from that, I think I'm right in saying they won everything else that year. Targa Florio, Mille Miglia famously with Sterling Moss at a record speed that was never bettered, about a just a smidgen under 100 miles an hour um, for, for 10 hours. So the SLR at the end of that year withdrew unbeaten. A result of the Le Mans catastrophe was that the Carrera Panamericana, which was this high-speed race in Mexico, on the then relatively new Panamericana Highway, the Carrera, as you know, I think I'm right in saying means race, um, that was cancelled. And Mercedes had built two closed cars for the assault on that race. And those two closed cars were the coupe versions of the 300 SLR, which was otherwise, as you know, an open car. You can either have it with one or two people. Some drivers chose to race alone, uh, like Fangio on the Millimilia. Others chose to have a, a navigator. It slowed them down a little bit because of the weight, but you knew which way the road might go, such as Moss and Jenkinson. Anyway, the two coupes, as a result of that, never raced. They were mothballed and effectively just used for testing. One of them was used occasionally by Uhlenhaut, the chief engineer of the project, as a road car. Legend has it that he was late for a meeting in Munich, leaving lunch in Stuttgart, and I think I'm right in saying that the trip is about 220 kilometers, and he supposedly did it in less than an hour, I think in 50 minutes. Um, <laughs> having driven the car, it's no surprise that he was deaf in later age. I cannot tell you the din of that car. So going but back... But this, this is important this is, for, for, for our sort of non-condescenti listeners. This word, Uhlenhaut, isn't, isn't specific to the car. It's this engineer, this man who was considered to be uh, the father of the great skunk works, fast Benzies, um, and, a, and a genius engineer. I've never engineer. heard it described as that. But he was, wasn't he? <laughs> but it's a good, yeah. He was it? the one that wedged an M100 yeah. into, a, into an S-Class. You know, he, he was the man. He was a who, dude. He did the crazy stuff. Yeah. He and was I, a, and, and I, he was also, by the way, an amazing driver. Yeah. He was as fast, almost as fast. And this is not just legend. You can, you can see it from the lap charts because Mercedes, of course, document and archive everything. Um, his dad was, a, uh, was the manager of Deutsche Bank in London. So he was born in London. His mother was English. He grew up perfectly bilingual. I think during the war, they worked for a branch, or the dad worked for a branch of Deutsche Bank elsewhere. Um, Rudolf Uhlenhaut, at a young age, went to work for the Mercedes-Benz racing department uh, in the 1930s. 
And there he started testing cars. Neubauer, the big, portly Alfred Neubauer, was the team manager. Um, but but Uhlenhaut was the chief engineer. And after the war, when Mercedes-Benz went back into racing, Uhlenhaut was, was called back um, to, to head up that effort. Although Neubauer was also, I think I'm right in saying, still team manager. But Uhlenhaut was the engineering father of the greatest Mercedes racing cars, certainly after the war, and in particular the, the, the coupe, which was nicknamed the Uhlenhaut because he was the person who, in fact, basically the only person who drove it apart from VIPs who were invited to test it. So, so I'll now let you come back to your in is it Garda or Como. And so late Garda, yeah. they, they fire up the Uhlenhaut coupe and... I can't. It's. I, I cannot put into words. I'm afraid what that car sounds like. But when I said earlier, it sounds like a creature from the deep. In the way that Ferraris bark at you, they have this this sharp and wonderful sound. You know, you've driven 250 GT Testarossas and GTOs and things like that. They sound fantastic. But the Uhlenhaut Coupe, I would describe. I would compare it. Not that I've heard it before, but the Loch Ness monster. It sounds like a creature from the deep. It sounds eerie. It sounds sinister. It's. It's, it's coming from under the surface. It's not out there barking and, and howling. But when it goes past you, and, and I'll come on to that afterwards, I mean, it, does sound, it, does, it sounds like a Formula One car because it is basically a, a Formula One car in a smart suit. But they said to me before I got into it, and, and Jochen Mass luckily was there um, because he'd been driving it a bit as well. And I said to him, can you give me any advice? And he said, yeah, yeah. Keep on the gray bit, avoid the green. I thought, well, that's a lot of help. <laughs> Um, but it's got a whole complex starting procedure. You turn on the magneto. There's no conventional ignition key. The steering wheel comes off like in a, in a, in a racing car. The weirdest thing about it, you, you might be all right, but I'm not, um, is that you're sitting, the driver's seat is directly above the prop shaft and the prop shaft comes between your legs. So it's like this sort of high-octane gynecologist's <laughs> chair where you've got your legs up in the air, the prop shaft in between them, you don't want to think what all of all the things that could go wrong. And then you have to try and put the steering wheel on. And if you're moderately tall, as I am, um, it's it's not... You can tell that the drivers were paid to be there rather than vice <laughs> yeah. versa in the 1950s. This very complex gear change that looks like something that Excalibur would have would have uh, been familiar with. But it's still with. a conventional H pattern, isn't it? It's yeah, it's, uh, it, it is a conventional pattern, but it's got this lockout yeah. and it's got these sort of Roman markings on it. Again, it looks like something from Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, but it is it's intimidating as hell. They said to me, "Do you want earplugs?" Poop. Of course I do. I want to enjoy the noise. I'm an old hand at this. Yeah. From the second the car fires up, you think oh, I should have said yes to those earplugs, but I was too proud to too proud to to, to change my mind. Um, and then eventually, the the mechanic warms the car up, squeezes into the passenger seat, which is minuscule. It's half the size of the driver's seat, and uh, and away you go. Um, it does not like running under three thousand revs. It is absolutely deafening at any speed. The brakes, and I'm talking about this from the from the perspective of a very normal driver, not not somebody like you, Chris. Um, you're slightly terrified by the value of the car, or at least you're mindful of the value of the car. You, you can't not be, um, although at the time we didn't know how much it was worth. Um, but you are conscious that you are on a public road. There are Fiat Unos and, and Vespas uh, 
floating around, even if you're not in central Milan, there's still traffic on this road. Um, but we did 49 kilometers, uh, at the end of which I had the hugest smile on my face, a buzzing in my ears that didn't go away for days. And I did make a point of telling the director of the museum, please remember I have an 11 kilometer credit. But it was truly, I, th I think I can say it was truly the most memorable drive of my uh, life. Uh, it's, often, it's often in a cliche way said, never meet your heroes. Did the driving experience stack up? It made it, me respect Uhlenhout a whole lot more because yeah. I thought anybody who could drive this on the road in any kind of normal way has to be a, a, a titan of, uh, of motor racing. Yeah. It was it, not an easy car. You, yeah. you, it's, it's a racing car. If you get into a normal gullwing afterwards, it's like going from a GTI, a, G, a GTO to a GTI. Yeah. Uh, as I said before, the doors open upwards, and that's a, and it's got four wheels. That's, that's about, about that's about where the similarities. So how so end. how do you go from being um, pri privileged enough to drive your ultimate hero car, the most valuable car on the planet that you've you've decided it is, and I think everyone agreed with you. How do you go from that to saying to Mercedes, "How about it?" Um. Uh, somebody who I know and I have talked about cars over the years and I've always said to him I, I suppose it's a bit like these pub quizzes that, that we or pub conversations that anybody who loves any subject not just cars enjoys having that's what, what we're doing today um, but I had the I, I had this conversation and I was asked what do you think is the most significant car in the world? And this conversation, or desirable car if you like, this conversation went on for not just months but years until one day this person said to me, I know you've always said that you never think the Uhlenhaut Coupe will be sold, but what have we got to lose by trying? Yeah. And there started a great and very expensive adventure. Just out of interest, so you say that conversation went on for months and years. What were the other cars considered? There weren't. There weren't. So there was only ever one car. And can I ask yeah. one thing about this? Is this? How much more special is the Uhlenhaut because there is only one, or there are two, but you know, it, it, does its rarity add that much more? Ergo, if there were only two Ferrari 250 GTOs in existence, would they have the same mythical status? I don't think rarity per se is the most important quality. There are plenty of cars that are unique simply because nobody wanted to buy them because they were rubbish. Yep. Um, so all these people usually trying to sell you something who tell you, oh, this is one of one or one of two. That in itself is not a, a guarantee of, of uh, star quality, yep. if you'll excuse the pun in the case of a Mercedes. Um, there are two coupes there are more open slrs but of course the open cars are the ones that raced especially uh, sterling moss's car and i think one could probably argue that that would be the absolute most valuable car 722 yeah 722 yeah. exactly uh, the car that that set that that record time on the millimedia uh, bear in mind at the same time though that as as, as i dare say with humans aesthetics are important the first attraction is often visual and I think one could argue that the Coupe 300 SLRs are even better looking than the open cars. But it's a, it's a moot point. Whether it's an open 300 SLR or whether it's a closed car, any 300 SLR. And bear in mind, none have ever, ever been sold. And it's that 
unobtainable quality even more than the rarity. So when you say never been sold, does Mercedes-Benz still own them all? Yes. Or are there, or were there cars that ended up in a private hands? Mercedes has never sold one. No. They've kept them all. They've loaned them out. Yeah. Mercedes were always very good at, first of all, they were amongst the first company companies to create a museum. Yeah. Um, but they've always been generous in showing the cars. I mean, look at, look at Goodwood, for example. And lending the cars to other worthy institutions, the Ford Museum, the Deutsches Museum, and, and, and so forth, have all uh, benefited from having these cars on long-term loan. But Mercedes has never, until the 5th of May last year, sold a 300 SLR. Right, let's get to the juicy bit. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna, we're going to move this on because it's too good and I want to get there. So how do you open the conversation? Do you just phone up and go, oh, hello, is that the Mercedes-Benz Museum? Do you fancy selling your most prized object? All I can tell you is that on the basis that we had nothing to lose, we went in there and opened a dialogue. And that dialogue, which was very cordial and uh, very, very informal, um, lasted for a year and a half. And uh, I could tell you, I could almost recite to you the menu of the Steigenberger Hotel in Stuttgart. And my gullwing now knows the way there uh, almost automatically, because I always thought it would be quite, it was quite nice to sort of drive there in something suitably old to be in the right frame of mind and to, and to show respect. Although on the first visit, I did go in there in my BMW. Did you? But I was forgiven. Were through. they receptive from the start? Or was there a moment they in that first intrigued. conversation? Were they? They were intrigued from the start. They were intrigued that somebody, I think, um, had they been asked before? Yes, they yeah. had been asked before. But I suppose it's as with so many things, I mean, you know, with my, on a much more humble level, my Mura, I don't get asked very often if I would sell it because people know I've had it for such a long time and love it so much, they assume I never would. And I think the same is true to some extent with Mercedes. People thought, what's the point in asking them? They're never going to sell it. So yes, they had had many approaches over the years, starting from when the car was new. If you look back at some of the period magazines, people like Rob Walker, uh, back in the 50s, asked, could we buy an SLR? And they were politely told, no, 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 those are not for sale, but we can sell you an aluminium gullwing instead, for example. So they had had approaches over the years. To cut a long story short, and apologies for being um, so verbose, um, after a year and a half of negotiations, they said to us, we are open to the idea of selling this car. You have opened a door that we never thought we would venture through. But at the same time, we are a large public company and therefore we cannot sell something to a person or an entity. We have to conduct a proper process. And so um, I was informed that uh, Mercedes would gather expressions of interest from other parties who might be potential buyers of this car. And with, I think I'm right in saying, one week's notice, uh, we were told that there would be a private auction. Um, to so which did, you, did you think, hang on a minute, I've done all this diligence, I've plucked up the courage to approach people, and I've just triggered a bloody auction. <laughs> and I don't want it to be an auction. Um... <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Unfortunately, you learn that large corporations... Um, the irony of the auctioneer being bitten by his own, by his own trade. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, the ex-auctioneer, <laughs> yeah. anyway, yeah. Um, 
Yes, large corporations do not always move in the way that uh, you might hope so Did that take you by surprise? Expect. Did you think it would be a yes or a no? The outcome you weren't thinking was, what we're going to do is we're going we're, we're gonna to put this out there, so to speak. Yes, I think yeah. that's a, a fair thing to say. Um, but then, then a of lot course, of a lot of work had gone into getting to that point, and hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. And to feel that you're potentially being slightly sidelined after you've put all the effort and commitment into it, and patience. Um, I think anybody in that situation would feel a slight degree of, of frustration, yes. But then you double down and think, right, so we now know what we're dealing with. You can't, you can't just give up at that point, can no. you? You've worked so hard to get to that point. You've put so much effort into it. Um, you want to get the deal done. You want your client to fulfill his dream. And let's face it, it was my dream as well. If somebody had asked me, in your entire career, what is the object that you would most like to handle? And if I'd been asked that question at any point for many, many years, the answer would have been the same. Yeah. So you think, well, this is not going to go the way that I want it to go. Um, but let's see if we can get it done anyway. And so you, you bite your lip. You think, okay, let's, let's get this done. And... So I said, okay, and obviously uh, we're very, very fortunate in having an extremely trusting and patient client. And I said, okay, well, if the client is happy, um, we'll, we'll go down that path. And the client was happy, and, and so we did. So you, you convene a private auction. Was it at, at, actually at the museum? It was at the Mercedes Museum, which was closed for the occasion. And How many people in the room? Bidders? Yeah. One. <laughs> One real bidder. Not an agent. Physically, or... you, but, were th but there were telephones for other people, were there? There were telephone, there were telephone bidders. Uh, I would say there were about nine telephone bidders. Were you on your tot? And, uh, <laughs> and one... One bidder in person. Okay. Uh, I've never been to an auction before. <laughs> so, that that one, sorry, that one bidder being you? Yes. Yes. This is fine. dystopian. Yeah. This is like something out of a Bond movie, isn't it? it? It's fantastic. It felt we are talking about like... Simon Kidston, though. You'd have to be there. <laughs> the idea... With his chosen number on the paddle. <laughs> but the idea, the idea just... <laughs> yeah, they did give me the... I will say that, to, to, to do them credit, they did give me the number 3007 as a bidder's paddle. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Mind you, as there were no other bidders paddlers, I suppose it was fa- fairly easy. Wow. I, and I take it you don't know who was on the phone. I have a pretty good. Well, have you a, have, have a, an idea now, but I have a pretty, good, you, have a pretty good idea. Yeah. What, so, what was their murmurings in that week leading up to the event? Yes, yeah. there were. Yeah, but obviously we asking didn't. for advice. Do you think what would you? It was do? delicate for us because if you're being asked for advice, <laughs> yeah, yeah. on something, you have to that, declare your um, position. But at the same time, you don't want to show. It's best just not to get involved in that conversation at all, because now, if you say something, you're 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 in a difficult position. Yeah, and if you. Yeah. It's better just not to say anything. Yeah, yeah. Not now, when, I, when I've poured my evening whiskey uh, and I'm sitting on collecting cars, collecting cars is the best auction platform in the UK, by the way, uh, for in the for, world, for, surely. For, for collector cars. Um, when, when I'm agonising over whether I should buy a Delta Integrale for sixteen grand, I really have to think about it. I have to plan in my head. I think, well, can I get? Have I got that money? Where can I? Can I? What can I stretch to? How do you plan? to buy the most expensive car in the world do you just sit there and say right this is the pot we've got this is where we stop we can go on forever what, what do you do when you sit with the client what do you decide and how do you reach those decisions well normally you look at comparables i mean we run an index the the k500 index which charts the price progression of the 500 most influential models over the past 30 years everything from a gto to a gti um but you won't find a 300 SLR there, at least as a price, um, as, as a, with a price history. You'll find it there as a, as a collector's car on the guide. And I think it's at the very, very top of the, of the meritocracy. But price data? No way. So what do you do? You can look at what, is it, what, are the, what are the other valuable cars? Well, we all know it's a Ferrari GTO. It's maybe a Bugatti Royale. It might be a Bugatti Atlantique. That's all well and good. But those cars have all been traded and if you're patient enough, another one will, will come up. Now, Bugatti Atlantique, you might need to wait 20, 20 years for one to come up. Ferrari GTO, if you offer somebody 30% more than the market price, you'll probably buy one. But an Uhlenhaut or even just A300 SLR, this is your only chance. You don't buy this car, you're not going to get another chance. So if you want what many people and in, in fairness, insiders, the average person does not necessarily know what a 300 SLR is. So you're not talking about a huge pool of buyers, especially at that price level. But if you want one of those cars, it's now or never. And so ultimately, I said to the client, um, where would you like me to go to? And he said to me, you decide. <laughs> and that's how it went. Okay. Simple as that. So the so the auction starts. Um, how how does it work? How does it, was there a reserve? Was there the reserve is not normally communicated in an auction. Yeah. But I had a pretty, I had an inkling of where I thought it was. Yeah. And the auction went slowly. I think the entire auction, and I have to say, I don't think I've been to an auction before where there was only one lot. <laughs> Uh, the entire auction, I believe, took 41 minutes. I looked on my watch. And there was a long period between the bidding. But it opened at 50 million euros. So it opened at the record, at more than the record price for any car at auction ever before. <laughs> Just the first opening bid. Bids, I think, initially were either in 5 or 10 million euro increments. That really is something... <laughs> from a Bond movie. And and the penultimate bid 
Of course, the number of bidders thinned out, as, as is always the case, as the bidding went along. It was, it was on the telephone. And I came in when I thought that things were getting serious. I just waited it out until then. And um, from memory, when it slowed down to just me and one person on the telephone, I bid, I can't believe I'm saying this, um, I didn't think I would ever say this, but I bid 130 million euros. The other person took a long time to come back at 132. And the poor person who was on the telephone with that bidder was, I could see he was giving it his all, but the person was, he was done. Yeah. He was past done. And um, he bid 132, and I I knew then that uh, that we were probably... We're probably going to prevail. But I think you, you indicated at some point they said the car is now for sale. Yeah. Uh, what what price was that at? It was at about a hundred million euros. Okay. <laughs> and 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 two bidders for how long? From what price? I know that would be telling it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but there were two bidders at the end. There were. Yeah. And I went back with. I was lucky that I didn't have to consult. I went back quickly with 135, and uh, the person on the telephone was trying to get his client to, to bid more. I looked at the auctioneer and tapped my watch to say, excuse me, we have been here for rather a long time, and we've, we've, been, we've been quick in giving you the bids. Can you please now wrap it up? He was very polite. He was very good. He was very, I, think he was the, I think he was the chairman of Sotheby's in, in Europe. Um, Anyway, he was very polite. Oh, yes, yes, of course, sir. Just need to give this gentleman a little bit more time. And then finally, in what se seemed like eternity, the hammer went down at 135 million euros. Uh, so a little bit of applause from the people politely, well, basically the other, the other telephone bidders, uh, politely uh, assembled in the room and, um, and, then, and then left the room. Um, and I have to say there was... Uh, yeah, there was a lot of adrenaline there. But um, I, I could not believe that that moment had just happened. Couldn't believe it. On a, on Surreal. A, on, on a very um, slightly base level, because that's a very emotional moment for you, Simon, I know. But do you think, was that the right price? Is that the price that you imagined the car would go for? Do you not really have any idea? Could, could the, the spread have been so, so large you wouldn't really be able to pinpoint it. The trouble it. is, Chris, there's, there, is, there is no comparable, is there? Yeah. Um, and I mean, the people who were bid, there were only 10 people were invited from around the world to bid on that car. Oh. Mercedes were quite clear as to the type of collector they wanted it to go to. Um, so they did not invite a wide pool of people to, to, to bid on it. Um, and the contract, I've never seen such a, uh, such a, a stringent this contract. This is really interesting, contract. the contracts and the way... The way the car will live now is is it's it's unusual, isn't it? The contract was very onerous, and it placed great responsibility on the buyer of the car. Um, without going, I mean, there was nothing particularly um, sinister, but uh, I suppose out of out of discretion, without going into too much detail, I will say that there are obligations on the buyer to keep the car for a period of time. That's not a problem in this case. Uh, to have the car maintained by Mercedes, I think that's a no-brainer. Uh, not to allow it to be used for, to make replicas, again, that's pretty pretty straightforward. And to allow, 
with uh, in con in consultation, but to allow Mercedes-Benz to show the car once every year or two years at a at a cultural event such as Goodwood or other appearances to be to be discussed together. Um, I think I think the requirement to keep the the car for a period of time probably that probably eliminated at least half the bidders, yeah. uh, potential bidders. Because we live in a, I don't wish to sound like a preacher here, but we live in an increasingly short-termist society. If you look at how long I don't know, Carrera GTs or F40s or whatever the speculator car of the moment is, if you look at how long, on average, they have been in the, in the same ownership, when you read a conventional auction catalogue, it's not unusual to see the vendor acquired or the consigner acquired this car in 2022. Um, so the obligation to, to, to keep a very, very valuable car for quite a long period of time will have... It will have scared off, frankly, quite a few people. Uh, luckily, the, the buyer of the car intends to keep this car forever so he was one of the people for whom this is not a not a not a not a constraint do you think um now mercedes has gone through that process it might be tempted to do it again because you've said this was the one chance to buy an slr would you be surprised if in five years time another one came up for sale yeah i would be surprised frankly um i think mercedes benz I think they had I think they had two goals in in doing or ag agreeing to do what what nobody ever thought they would. One is to fund this uh, foundation which um is aimed at educating young people into the future of mobility and how the car where the car goes from here in terms of the internal combustion engine and the other is in terms of repositioning or they would probably say returning mercedes-benz to its position at the top of the tree in the luxury luxury automotive sector i think we can say that mercedes-benz obviously uh, were the pioneers when it came to the invention of the of the automobile certainly in the 20s and the 30s they were they represented the best of the best the s type the ss the sSk 500k 540k those cars were as good as it gets in their day in the 20s in the late 20s and 1930s and then again in the 1950s the 300 sl even though even though it's not an slr it was still, and I'm sure you've, you've both driven them, that was the benchmark sports car, arguably the first supercar. Even Ferrari could not beat that car. It was a spaceship. It, it was a spaceship. Yeah. Nothing, nothing, nothing bettered that car as an overall package in its day. And then if you look in terms of luxury cars, the 600 Mercedes in the, in the 60s and the 70s, nothing beat it. And I guess you could say that in this era of more humble cars, dare I mention, I mentioned the A-Class, for example, um, that total dominance, that exceptional star quality has been, if nothing else, diluted. 
And I guess our approach to Mercedes came at a good time because it coincided with them looking at their brand positioning and thinking, we want to be more than just an automotive brand. We want to be a luxury brand. And so part of my presentation to them in the early stages of this whole discussion was to show them where the record price for any car in history stood, where it had stood for the previous 50 years, and how that record could be smashed by the right car from the right manufacturer. And that's exactly what happened. Had, had you come to them with an offer in those early days? Possibly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah. Do you have any data to, to, to demonstrate to Mercedes-Benz how prolific or how searched and how red their name was when that price was announced? Because it must be after Lewis winning a World Drivers' Championship, the time that Mercedes-Benz had the most exposure on the internet post, well, in, in the modern era, wouldn't it? It was on the front page of every newspaper. That's a, good, that's a good point, and I don't know the answer to that, but certainly it attracted a lot of press. Good SEO value, that. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, our, our proposal to them originally was to do a deal that was completely um, under the radar yeah. and with, uh, with no publicity whatsoever but i can yes, of course it's frustrating for, for for me because we we wanted to do this uh without the world knowing about it and it would have been um i think a very satisfying thing to do without any publicity um but at the same time i understand where they're coming from and that they had to go through this due process as we said before it's uh, things don't always go the way that that you want or they, they you don't get to the point where you want to get by the route that you expected, but I think it's fair to say, without being too corny, that in the end, everybody achieved their goal. Mercedes-Benz smashed, I mean, smashed out of the ballpark the record price ever paid for a car. Um, the money was raised for their foundation. The new owner, and I, I genuinely do not believe there's anybody else in the world who would be as passionate deeply deeply passionate about that car as the buyer who now owns it um of course it's about of course you have to be wealthy to afford something like that it goes without saying but you you'd like to think that somebody owns it that really appreciates it and the 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 buyer is 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 so 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 happy on a deeply emotional level. This is not just an investment. And the one question that the buyer never asked me in the lead up to all of this is, the word investment was never mentioned once, and he never asked me, and I think this is very telling, he never asked me, what do you think that car will once one day be worth? Not once. We need to get over there until we can sign a couple of SLRs onto collecting cars over. <laughs> Wax 722 up, no reserve on a Sunday night. Um, so this, this is the, the awkward question. Have you peaked too early in your life? You've done it now. Do you have to go and do you have to go and try and better this? Did you have that awful sportsman's hangover? Well, it's often said that great sporting achievements come with great depression afterwards because people go, "Oh my God, I've done it." Do you feel that way? Do you? Do you do, has it spurred you on? This sounds really corny, but I have to say I'm super lucky that I still really enjoy this business, and I've said so many times it's not about. It's not about that, and I shouldn't say that, I shouldn't say this in public, but I will. Um, the amount spent is not proportional to the enjoyment derived, yeah. and 
I mentioned my little Alpha Spider before. I had more fun with my Alpha Spider, which cost three thousand pounds or whatever, um, than I have with anything since, including the McLaren F1, because it's all about being carefree and living it and not being too precious about it. Um, the SLR was the dream of a career, the dream of a lifetime. But there are so many cars, other cars that I have um, admired over my over my career and even before then when I was just a, 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 a student, an enthusiast. Um, there's so much left still to do, so many cars left to handle, left to, to sample. Um, no, I'm, I'm glad that I did it uh, now, uh, but so many more exciting things that I'd still love to do and so many boxes to tick and so many, so many cars to handle and, and to be involved with in some shape or form. A couple of questions for you, because we're, we're going to have to wrap this at some point, because it's, it's, we could go on for hours. Might have to do a part two or something <laughs> in a couple of months' time. But um, I apologize for being... No, it's, it's great storytelling, <laughs> and we love it. But we just, I suppose we have to understand that most people don't drive for longer than two and a half hours at a time, and I always think this is car journey material. I, I've got <laughs> so many questions to ask you, but I'll, I'll limit it to two. First of all, change the subject completely. Your video work, I mean, I, I, that's my world. You're irritatingly good at it. And, and, and also... Well, come and drive on one of them, well, Chris. I, I drive? Jesus Christ, I've been reduced to be one of the You could be one of the... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, no, but I, but We'd I, love to have but, you in one but, of our videos, I, and you would actually fit in the cars I know, as well. But I, I, I just... I wonder if the first one I saw, I just, I just thought, this guy gets it. It's just... It's unashamedly sort of self-consciously enjoying getting on with cars and trying to make something look beautiful and pretend that you're in the Italian job. I think you have to have a sense of humour. I think that's yeah. really important. You can't be too up, too, too up your own bottom. Um, I, I, I hate the idea that cars be treated purely as investments, that people mollycoddle them, that they agonise about the mileage. I think it's it, we, we all like cars, especially old cars, for different reasons. Is it nostalgia? Is it vanity? Is it excitement? Is it investment? Whatever it might be. To me, you have to approach these things with a sense of humor, particularly as we said earlier, you, there are going to be setbacks along the way, whether it's, whether it's having somebody else coming and <laughs> piggybacking your deal or whether it's breaking down, whatever it might be. Um, old cars are not rational. They should be about fun. If they go up in value along the way or, or, or we make uh, a living out of it, great. But I think the most important thing is to re retain that sense of, can I say, childish wonderment that yeah. I think we all have when you're confronted with something that you think is, just for lack of a better word, really cool. And that's what we try to convey in the videos. Just regardless of the age group, I'm of the era that I guess saw the Persuaders or Miami Vice on, on TV. We try and recreate a bit of that. Um, I grew up in Italy, so there's obviously often a, a strong Italian theme. Some of the cheesy Italian uh, films and TV series that, that myself and, and my Italian colleagues grew up with. And we just... We just play with it and have and but, have fun with it. But if it. you've not if you're not familiar with them, go on to go on to Instagram or YouTube and and see Simon's films. They really are great fun. There's some beautiful cars, many of which are his. So you're you're sadly not as many as yeah, you think. But but, but actually the, his car experience and and what he's owned and driven is outrageous. We, you know we ha can't get through all of it now. Maybe that's what part two is. But talk us through the McLaren. You you had a McLaren F1 that you genuinely used more than most people. Do you? rate that as one of your greatest privileges as, as an owner and driver? Was it was it as good as you'd hoped? 
Do you know what? I'd never actually driven a McLaren F1 before I before I bought one. Um, back in 2006, uh, with with Mark Stewart, Jackie's Jackie's younger son, who's an old school friend of mine, we did a documentary for Smithsonian Networks in the States uh, on supercars, and we chose supercars through the generation. I think the, we called it the supercar story. So we started off with a Gullwing from the 50s, uh, a Mura from the 60s, Countach from the 70s. Uh, F40 from the 80s, uh, from the 90s it was a McLaren F1, and then a, a Veyron for the 2000s. And we managed to find all of the all of the cars. Bugatti lent us the Veyron, which we went up to Molsheim to drive. But to find an F1 owner that was willing, willing to let us use his car, we had to go to the Middle East. And the car that we found there was a GTR, a short-tailed GTR. And I wasn't allowed to drive it for insurance reasons. The owner's professional drag racer had to drive it. And I remember we were driving along this road in the in the desert, for want of a better description, and we must have gone past poor cyclist. We must have gone past this cyclist doing about two hundred miles an hour, and I could remember seeing him bobbing in the in the wake of this car in the rearview mirror as he flashed by. Poor chap. And I I remember I still remember you know the flights from the Middle East come back to Europe uh, in the middle of the night, and I remember checking in at the airport. It must have been past midnight putting my phone through the through the the security scanner and I was already texting a client in Europe who had a McLaren F1 saying would you sell your car that's what a lasting impression it left on me although why I was doing that I have no idea because I there's no way I had enough money to buy one um as it happened that negotiation lasted for 3 years until 2010 when miraculously I managed to to pulled together enough money, and of course values were very different then, uh, pulled together enough enough money um, to, to buy one. And, and, and I managed to buy that car from him. The day that I went to collect it at the McLaren factory, I'd always, this was a, a perfectly nice silver road car, but the car that I'd always wanted, the, the F1 that I'd always wanted was a car that I'd sold years before as, a, as an auctioneer um, in Paris on behalf of the first owner. And it was black. And my mirror is black. I like I like black cars. I think most cars look great in black. And it was chassis number 007. And being a fan of old Bond movies, I thought, well, that's the one to have. I couldn't find out what had happened to it. I'd sold it to Chris Palmer, a Yorkshire nightclub owner and serial Was that the cheapest car ever sold? It was the cheapest road car sold, I think. What I remember Chris, Chris drove all the way down from Yorkshire in his M5. This was September 98. And he was the only person in the auction, and he put his hand up for three hundred and three and a half million, <laughs> three and a half million French francs, which was three hundred and fifty thousand pounds. The car had four hundred kilometers on the odometer, and we managed to get it stuck in gear as well because we didn't know how the anti sort of anti theft gear gear linkage worked. Um, Chris was the only person there. I I showed this car to a GTO, a two fifty GTO owner before the auction. And he said to me, what's the estimate on this car? I said, 4 million francs, 400,000 pounds. Ha, 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 you'll never get that for that car. How can one of those silly cars be So you have that? been in an auction with only one bidder before. I have. <laughs> and more, often, more often than not, no bidders. 350,000 pounds. Chris was the only man. He put his hand up. He'd driven through the night. I probably came straight from his nightclub. He'd driven through the night to buy this thing. And to me, he was, he was the, the holy savior because had it not been for that, the car would not have sold. Yeah. Anyway, that car just stuck in my mind because I had it as a young auctioneer, because it was black, it was chassis 007 and so on and so forth. But I, I didn't know where it had ended up, that car, because Chris had sold it and then... 
it sort of disappeared off the face of the earth. Anyway, I go to collect the F1 at the factory, the silver car that I'd bought. Uh, super excited. This was a realization of a, of a dream. I couldn't believe that humble little me was going to own a McLaren F1. I thought, this is just not possible. I was pinching myself. And it would have been the best day of my life if it had not been for the fact that what was sitting behind <laughs> the silver car I'd just bought, bloody 007. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And I went from being elated to being quite elated but slightly disappointed. And of course, back in those days, the person who ran the F1 program at McLaren was very, very tight-lipped and there was no way in the world he would have told me who owned the car behind, just that it was there in for a service. Anyway, I get the car, the F1 collected. I didn't dare drive it. It was collected by a truck. And I went back and sort of told myself that I was actually very, very lucky. And I kept on thinking, oh, bugger, the 007 was there. It did look good in black. We talked about luck earlier. That evening, the telephone in my office rings, and there's a, there's a crackly line. Hello, can I speak to Simon Kidston? I can't do the accent. Apologies. Yeah, this is Simon Kidston. Hi, I'm calling from the States. I own a car that I would like to sell, and I'm told you're the, you're the expert in them. It's a McLaren F1, chassis 007. I, <laughs> I put my hand on my head and I thought, okay, how can we, how can we progress this situation? So what did I do? I thought, well, listen, I've already bought an F1. I certainly can't, I can't, I can barely afford the one that I've bought, let alone a second one. So I thought, okay, I'll at least try and sell the car for this, for this gentleman. So I call up a big collector who has a GTO, 250 GTO. He has all the all the the, the, the iconic cars, Alpha 8C and so on. And I said to him, look, you're a big collector. How would you like to own one of the essential cars for any collection, a McLaren F1? And he said to me, ah, Simon, I'm not really a collector. I just own the cars that I like. And I'm not sure that I like a McLaren F1. But even if I did, what color is it? And I said, it's black. He said, oh, no, I don't like black cars. Maybe if there was a silver one. <laughs> and the rest you can guess. <laughs> um, a month later, and he was very good about it. He gave me a bit of time to make all the mechanicals of the deal work. Um, a month later, I collected F1 007 from McLaren as my new car. And he collected a silver F1 McLaren. And you know what? He drove the car down, the silver car, to the south of France from, from Woking. And when he got there, he called me and he said, Simon, I don't like this car. He said, I'm not asking for money back. He said, I don't like it. It's not as fast as my Veyron. It's not as involving as my 250 GTO. And because it's relatively young, I don't make the same allowances that I would for a 1960s car. So could you sell it for me? And I'm happy to get my money back. Oh, and by the way, um, I cracked the windscreen, but I'll pay the £10,000 that that costs on top. And so I called a client who'd been looking for an F1. And within 11 hours, he'd flown to the south of France and agreed to buy the car. And he still has it today. <laughs> I suppose every month that went on at that point in time, these were going up in value. About no, <laughs> no, they weren't. But they're not. I, I, this car was worth more than my house. Yeah. Um, I, I thought, I must be mad to have done this. I must be bonkers. What am I doing? But I thought, you know, you only get these chances once. And if you absolutely love cars, experience them if you can. Yeah. Um, you know, when I bought my Mura 25, 25 years ago this month, it was £79,000, my Mura SV. And 
I said to my wife, look, there's a car that's come up, which I absolutely adore. And I should add, by the way, I already owned a Mio SV. I bought one a couple of years before, which is the first expensive car I'd ever bought. It was 36,000 pounds because it had had an accident. And um, I said to her, look, I've, I've been offered my favorite Mura of all time, this black car and so on and so forth. And I said, would you kill me if I bought it? I could just about scrape enough money together. She said, look, as long as you've got money for our kids' education, um, do what you want. It's your money. I should say that at that stage, I didn't actually have any kids, so it was made, <laughs> made it a bit easier. Um, and I've still got it now 25 years later. And all of these cars that I've bought, not that there have been that many, but every time I've had to take a huge gulp and think, I must be mad. Um, but I've done it. In, it. in the same way, by the way, that Nick Mason said to himself, and he's told me this many times, I'm going to spend £40,000 to buy an old Ferrari 250 GTO back in 76 or 77. Um, he said, and look at me now. Uh, people think I'm some kind of automotive Warren Buffett. <laughs> I just bought the car because I liked it, even there's, though I couldn't really afford it. There's an it. important message in there, not sort of at the end of He-Man style when you used to get the moral message, but the message is, it, whatever you're buying, whatever the price point is, you have to buy the car because you want it, because you lust after it, because it's meaningful to you. The moment you stray too far from that basic premise and you start using the I word, you're bollocks, aren't you? You're, you're, you're buying the wrong car for the wrong reason at probably the wrong price. It's a bit like cars that are made for the wrong reason. And listen, everybody, everybody um, is entitled to make money. But at the same time, cars that are conceived by marketing men for the sole purpose of making money or trying to tell people that they're an investment, of course, every car has to make money. I mean, even a, even a, a pure racing car has to make money. But cars whose sole purpose is to appeal to investors, I think if, you, if, if, if an object does not have authenticity, in integrity of purpose, it's not going to be a collectible car in the long run. And an American car dealer who, like me, has written for Sports Car Market for a long time, he wrote, I thought this was very perceptive, he, he wrote, anything that is intended to be collectible will almost certainly not be. Yeah. And that referred to a lot of, I'm sorry to say this, I shouldn't name them, but a lot of... Uh, a lot of the collectors' cars coming from the Emilia-Romagna region of Italy or the Swabian part of Germany. Um, a car, I mean, and that's what was appealing about the McLaren, by the way. The fact that we could barely give it away when it was four years old shows that that was not a car that people bought for investment. You had to really want that car to, to buy it. And it was a commercial failure. It was a, it was a commercial disaster. Mm. Um, and so the people who bought it did so for the right reasons. Whereas all these people who put their name down for limited edition supercars because the dealer has given them the, the wink, wink, nudge, nudge, nudge that this is going to be a great investment, those people are doing it for the wrong reasons. And I'm afraid to say, yeah, they might go up in value, but they could equally go down in value. And I'm afraid to say if you, if you buy those cars for that purpose and you don't really love them, then you, 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 you can't be too unhappy if you then get caught holding the baby yep. um, when the when the bath water runs well, out. There's no enjoyment if you can't drive it. I, I want to ask one last question, and it's a little bit trite. Um, what's hot to trot for, for 23? What what do you think is interesting? What's what's undervalued? I'm asking you to give me the recipe for Coca-Cola. Generally, if somebody it, says to you something's undervalued, you know it's going to go down yeah, <laughs> even yeah, further. Yeah. Um, and also, I have to say, I'm terrible, about, terrible at following my own advice because I, I tipped, uh, I've tipped Kuntesh Kuntesh is to be a good news for a long time. 
I own, I've had my, my uh, LP400 Periscope for quite a, a good few years. Um, but I think, the, obviously, the late cars, particularly QVs, are very good news at the moment. I bought one, sold it, mistake, um, and clearly should have kept it. But I think QV Countesh's in general... Uh, Bloody Metcalf's there with a massive smile on his face now. <laughs> I, can hear, I can feel it, Harry. Don't laugh, but LM002s yep. um, are, are good news. Possibly the, the, the worst car dynamically ever built, but you've driven one, I'm sure. You would fit. I don't. But um, in terms of character, presence, I mean, it's not called the Rambo Lambo for nothing. I think that uh, V8 Astons of the late 80s, which had their moment a few years ago, paused a little bit now. I think those are going to come back because they represent, in many ways, the last of the hand-built Astons, of the classically styled Astons. Uh, a V8 Vantage X-Pack from, from that period, I think, is, uh, is good news. Um, in terms of the, the, the modern supercars, which I, go, I know you guys are very, very much in tune with, um, I'm going to be uh, slightly counter-cyclical, and I think that some of those cars have been pumped up, if I may say, a little bit too much. Uh, I had a Carrera GT. I, I'm afraid to say I, I probably sold it too soon, but I got slightly uh, spooked by all the stories that I've heard, I think including yours, Chris, about how lethal they were. Um, they're probably not bad news in, 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 the, in the long run, but I think a lot of those cars have now been uh, overhyped. Yeah. And it's not to say they're not good cars, but just, people are just, they're, they're, in my opinion, they're not worth intrinsically what some of those modern supercars, what people are and asking were, for. And they were built in quite some volumes as well. There's a few of them. And I suppose what you referred to with the way that the owner of the McLaren F1 described the driving experience as being something that he couldn't forgive through age. In other words, it sits in that quasi-modern era where you almost have to drive it like a modern, but you're disappointed that actually versus the very latest kit, it doesn't feel that special. A lot of the 10-year-old supercars or sort of pioneer hypercars are in that zone for me. Yeah. Like an, an, an Enzo, for example, is one of the most disappointing cars I've ever driven. Because at the time, it was banshee, normally aspirated V12 with these paddles. But in isolation, it's just a shit gearbox in a car that would get roasted by an SF90. Mm. Um, and I don't think it looks great either. So I think that they, they do suffer, don't they? I think that's a good comparison, talking about the SF90. And if you think about it, when a Daytona came out, it probably accelerated as fast as a 250 GTO, which was by then a... 10-year-old car, 8-year-old car. Um, certainly an SF90 now will outrun a lot of these other supercars of just a few recent years ago, like the, the Carrera GT and so, and so forth. Um, ultimately, if you want to get from A to B fast, go by EasyJet. It's faster than, it's faster, <laughs> well, leaving, us, leaving aside the speedy boarding, yeah. but it's faster than any, any motor car. It's not about how fast you get there. And let's face it, we're all, we're increasingly restricted in terms of how fast we can go, even in Germany most of the time these days. It's all about the experience. None of, none of us need to, 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 to have a car that does 200 or whatever miles an hour. I will say that the F1, which I did a lot of miles in over 10 years, uh, I must have done about... 35,000 kilometers in that car. Um, used it for everything from school run, uh, went to the supermarket in it, uh, got it up to, I think the fastest I went in it was about 350 kilometers an hour. I won't say where. Um, and it does get faintly terrifying above <laughs> 200 and something kilometers an hour. 
I think my BMW M5 felt a hell of a lot more more stable. Um, but my God, that is just a fantastic, fantastic engine. That has to be one of the great engines in history. You know, you've tried it. It'll purr along in first gear. It'll purr along in fourth gear at city speeds. And and yet when you when you floor that throttle, it sounds like a 1970s normally aspirated Formula One car. The intake noises. Oh, it's just... The gear change, it's very corny. With the, tra- with the tracks going over your head. Yes. So, so the, that, that intake noise is peeling forwards into the cabin. You know, it's, it's actually in the space with you. And nothing synthetic. None of this nonsense no. about uh, fake, fake noise being, being projected into the cabin. Gear change takes a little bit of mastery. I remember Andy Wallace, who came to us when we did the test in Reims with that versus the Veyron, Kept on, um, kept on saying that he couldn't find third gear, but by that stage he was employed by Bugatti. Um, the st- it rolls quite a lot. I mean, I'm talking to you, and you're the professional driver. I just, I just sell cars, but it it does roll a lot. Yeah. Um, you get a, quite a lot of, of pitch under under hard braking. You don't have ABS braking. Don't have ABS. With it's 620 horsepower, and it's the brakes squeal a lot at low speed in in town. But that's just just that's something you can't avoid. Um, but over, and I have to say, and I don't mean this in a bad way. Peter Stevens is a is a is a friend. Um, it was never the styling that captivated me. It was the just the aura of single-minded attention to detail. It was obsessional, wasn't it? It was, and I love that. I'm, I'm, I'm a Virgo. Maybe maybe that maybe that's why. I love the fact that it was absolutely without compromise, and no cost had been spared in developing that car, no matter how much they had to sell it for to try and recoup those costs, which of course they didn't. That's what I liked about it. And the packaging, whether you're tall or short, it's a very comfortable car to drive, including for long distances, especially if you haven't got passengers, because then you can put your elbows on the passenger seat. The stereo in that car, Kenwood stereo, CDs only, and you're sitting bang in the middle of it. So the sound was fantastic. The packaging, the luggage, everything about it was just so, so well conceived. And that's what I like about it. But two things made me sell that car. First of all, it came to be worth a lot of money, especially for somebody somebody like me, not being a, a master a master of the financial <laughs> universe. Well, not not a hedge fund manager, sadly. Um, so you have to think to yourself, this car now. If I if I do something terrible with it, um, or if I keep on piling the miles onto it, um, I'm being irresponsible in terms of of what of what the car is, is is worth. And the other thing was actually on the McLaren tour in Tuscany. Um, I was just minding my own business doing, I suppose, 60 kilometers an hour on a, on a B road. A car coming the other way slowed down, waiting to turn to his left, to my right. And at the very last minute, he decided that actually he would go before I'd passed. And he went straight in front of me. And I, in a split second, and I'm not claiming any superhuman abilities, but I had to flick the car to the left. And by this stage, there was another car waiting behind him flick the car to the left and get it into that gap between him turning in front of me and the car waiting behind. How I did it, I don't know. The car must have been wobbling all over the place. Um, But after that experience, I thought that could have been a very nasty accident. Um, I at least would have been in hospital and the car would have been in hospital in in Woking. And I thought, okay, maybe maybe I can't drive this car quite the way that that I've always driven it until now. And... um, and so that's the, the moment when I started thinking about, uh, about sadly parting with it. But to answer your original question, I am so lucky to have had the opportunity to, to have that car for such a long time, to do so many miles in it, and to have some experiences which I will uh, 
bore my kids with for years to come. Simon Kidston, um, we'll, we'll, we'll reconvene because there's more to get from you. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your stories and particularly the sale of the most valuable car ever sold in the world. What a story. Um, carry on doing what you do. Thank you, uh, Simon. Chris, Edward, it's an honor to be in your esteemed company. Thank you very much for having me and for the call. Bye for now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.